Hello, this is Carol Walton, the voice of Jewelry. We're coming to the end of the season soon, and we'll be doing a special episode where I answer any questions you might have and send them to me. You can message me on Instagram at Carol Walton or via the website. But I hope whatever episode you've got queued up now, you really enjoy. And thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Fully Gemstones. Do you ever sort of lament that that glamorous life has gone? Oh, yes, totally. Absolutely all the time. Everything is exactly the same now, isn't it? I mean, nobody really looks different to anybody else. Nobody has a kind of stamp anymore. You can't wear jewels anymore. People steal them. The difference, a whole different world. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. I'm so happy today to be talking with Nikki Haslam, who is the legendary English interior designer and writer and arbiter of everything that is good taste. So I'm lucky enough to come over to his house this morning and take a little look around. And later on, we're going to talk about the tea towel. It's what we call in England a tea towel, a dishcloth in the States. Basically, it's printed once a year with everything that Nikki thinks is no longer good taste. In fact, it's common. So stand by and do have Google handy for this conversation because Nikki drops names and you'll need to know who these people are. Um, He tells us mostly, but there are some figures, some very glamorous and well-known figures of the 60s that you might want to look up. And we mention ear piercings and the Duke of the Jura. If you want to scroll back, they feature on episodes seven and nine of If Jules Could Talk. Hello, Nikki. Thank you very much for hosting me this morning. I'm so pleased you could come. It's wonderful. You're looking as ravishing as always. I wanted to ask you, first of all, about the glamour of the 1960s, because you started your career at US Vogue, didn't you? Well, I actually started English Vogue, but then I I would work for English Vogue almost as soon as I left Eton, but only doing sort of rubbishy things. I can't even remember who the editor was so long ago. Anyway, but Claire Rendlesham was already on it. As a fashion editor. editor. And then um, I was going to New York with David and Jean. David Bailey and Jean Shrimpton. who were my closest friends at the time. I'd like to say to anyone listening that whenever a a name is mentioned, be assured it is a famous name you've heard of. (laughs) (laughs) I met David when he was working for, he was a £3 a week assistant for John French. Uh And I met John and Via French through Bunny Roger. I mean, that whole thing's on ties up. And fell completely in love with David who was married to somebody else at the time, and he got rid of Rosemary. And then he came to live with me 
and by the cottage in Lambeth. And one day he brought back this girl called Jean Shrimpton. I tell you, you'll never met anything of her, she's very plain. And, well, how wrong I was, but Jean became a great friend. And we went to New York together. And so what, Claire, the three of you, as a yeah, threesome? They'd been asked to go for glamour. And I thought I'd just go for fun, because my sister lived in New York, hadn't been since coronation, practically. And um, Claire Randlesham said to Alexander Liebman, there's this young Englishman. He was the managing right? director of Condé Nast. Yes, well, he was mm. not managing director, he was sort of artistic director. Director. And he asked to see me, and I walked in his office, and he, after about 10 minutes, said, I want you to go upstairs. So that's I joined, and I stayed for 11 years. And what were you doing in the art department? I, I was just doing, you know, helping with the layout. Mm-hmm. But when I joined, it was Jessica Daves, the editor. And after about three months, there was this buzzer on the office saying, Diana Vreeland's coming, Diana Vreeland's coming. And um, I and Serena Russell... Were, were the only people under the rank of editor asked to the party to meet her when she arrived. I, of course, adored her immediately, and we became great friends. So I was doing much more than just being... I was in the art department. I was sort of producing English people to photograph, and, you know, she Fixing wanted... Fixing so, things. She wanted somebody young. And my father had sent me this photograph... My father's from Bolton. Sent me a photograph of the Beatles, saying these idiot-looking boys are the biggest thing in music at the moment in England. He couldn't tell one tune from another. And they looked cute. And I showed them to Vreeland. She said, get them photographed. And I came over, we photographed them at a theatre in Northampton. And that photograph is the first photograph ever printed in America of the Beatles. It was in Vogue. Now, do you remember, what was Diana Vreeland wearing at that party? Black. Black. Yeah. Black and the bangles. But you didn't really notice what she wore. You so what her... bangles did she have on? Well, those great thick sort of Nancy Cunard mm. ones. And probably a gold one too. She had a big gold one. No but earrings? You... I remember she always had quite sort of plain earrings. She never, didn't wear, never wore diamond earrings at all. They're always gold or quite chunky, like shells. Mm-hmm. Like Seaman Sheps. Yeah, yeah Seaman Sheps, that sort of, or even Fulka. Mm-hmm. But you notice really that extraordinary colour in her cheeks, that sort of cerise cheeks with the with the pink ears, because she powdered her ears with pale pink. Did she? Or bright pink, actually, yes. Yeah. Like blusher? With hair's almost. brush, hair's foot brush. She blushed her, did her ears pink. And what was the reason for that? To I make her it, face white, I suppose. I think it, no, because I think she thought it was sort of kabuki, really. I mm-hmm. mean... And I'm sure it had been done in the past. She knew everything about the past and why sleeves had been set at that angle in 1730. You know, she was extraordinarily knowledgeable on that level. So she must have read it somewhere that pink ears made your face something, I don't know. And but, the women working at Vogue at that time, I should imagine, were very glamorous. Yes, they were, but they all wore white gloves. And I mean, the receptionists wore white gloves. Really? Yeah. And all wore beige, all uh, all wore beige, white gloves, sort of white lapel suits, you know, but, but very but prim. Hats, very elegant. I think. And hats. Yeah, that, that's how women were. So skirts, pencil skirts. Pencil skirts, or I think the young editors were sort of Jackie Kennedy, ball, sort of ballerina leg skirts, you know, right. pleated skirts. But certainly the older ones wore pencil. Let me tell skirt. you, it is not like that now. <laughs> <laughs> And they dressed up. I mean, people wore hats. I think editors then felt a responsibility to be the part, to be they the were. role. How exactly. could they set the style unless they looked stylish? Exactly. And you made friends with a lot of these women, didn't you? These Like the Duchess of Windsor. Yeah, but, well, yeah, there were a lot of very nice women in New York at the time. But it was very small New York in those days, oddly enough. It was much smaller society than ours. And it was still quite waspy. Mm-hmm. When I say waspy, in the sense there were... 
grand patrician families that still had palazzos in Rome or Hotel Particulier in Paris. Still that, that crossover to Europe and, and America still existed, which disappeared within the next decade. But they absorbed you in, so they were open-minded to this young English. Well, they loved English, obviously. Mm. And my sister, I mean, she was American, mm-hmm. and she knew sort of a lot of the artistic world. And I, I met a lot of Americans before I went in London. So, I mean, I knew Fulco before I went. That's Fulco de Vidura. Yeah, Fulco, I knew well. And Italian Duke. Yeah. Who we have dedicated a whole podcast to. Have you? But tell me your thoughts on him. Oh, it was wonderful, Fulco. A, he was the most learned man I've ever known. He taught me everything I know about opera, history, whatever. I, mean, I just loved him. He was just such fun and so naughty. And, uh, and, and all his friends were so funny. He was just, And he didn't like talking about shop. He never. He hated talking about jewels. He loathed talking about shop. So he never told us about jewels or people's jewels out of our... But, but he sold all those women. But I used to go and see the most beautiful things mm-hmm. ever that he made, and they were unbelievable, the beauty of his things. What I want to ask you is that at that moment, that sort of era, in any jewellery book you read about Cartier Van Cleef, any major jeweller, Fulco, at the time, it's always they made for Babe Paley. Now, can you tell us who was Babe Paley? Because <laughs> <laughs> she was one of those women whose names you hear of the whole time, but you think, well, who was she? Babe was one of the three, what they called Cushing sisters, Minnie Astor, Mrs Whitney, Jock Whitney's wife, and Babe, and they were the three beautiful Cushing sisters from Boston. But Babe was just, she was famously beautifully dressed and very nice at, at a wonderful house on Long Island called Kailuna Farms. Went to wonderful parties out. In fact, I went to Bar, bar, bar Baltimore's coming out dancer. Mm-hmm. She wasn't the brightest babe, but she was the sweetest. The other were much brighter, Millie Astor and uh, the other sister, Betsy Whitney, were much cleverer, mm-hmm. but not as pretty. And was it like a full-time job? Her clothes, her social life, was that really a full-time job? Yes, but it was for a lot of people at mm-hmm. that time. You, mm-hmm. you, I mean, you'd change, you had, a, in those days, you, after in the morning, you went back to change for lunch. After lunch, you changed something for the afternoon. Then you changed for cocktails. Then you changed for dinner. It wasn't their full-time thing. It was, the clothes were a full-time thing. Do you know what I mean? The difference yeah, everybody between. did it. You had, the, it was prescribed how you, how you, how, what you wore for, for certain occasions. And what was the job? They changed the jewellery for each of these occasions. When I got to know that well, they, they weren't wearing this old duck, crusty old diamonds. They were wearing Fulco sort of shells and leaves and, and more like sort of costume jewellery made real. I saw a very grand necklace one time at Verdura's showroom and they said somebody like Babe Paley, oh, that would be her, her lunchtime look. But to me, now, it looked unbelievably grand, you know, graduated rows of big semi-precious stones. But I, I think you were only wore a pin for lunch. A pin for lunch, okay. Yeah, and clips, matching clips, that was still in. And bracelets. Cuffs. Quite a lot of bracelets. Cuffs, exactly. Mm. And then, Matching wrists, they were very chic to have. Very chic, still are. Yeah, really? I think so. Well, I think it's a very chic look. Not many people do it, obviously. Many people do matching wrists. And so they'd step it up a notch at cocktail hour. Yes. And what would that be? Probably pearls, a bit of diamonds, and then in the evening it would be sort of something, sort of a big stone, emeralds or, you know. Show-off stones, yes. Um, But all there were hundreds of women who dressed up. There was, you know, there was um, Bismarck, um, 
Mona Harrison, Mona Bismarck. Mona Bismarck. Best dressed woman in the world. Yeah. Sort of widely acknowledged, I yeah. said, yes. She had a great jewellery collection, and, didn't and, she? Yeah, wonderful looking clothes, wonderful. So were you sent out by Diana Vreeland to, to meet people, to introduce them, to bring them back to Vogue? as subjects for stories sometimes? Well, I'd just find them and bring mm. them back. I wasn't sent by Richie, so, <laughs> you know, I, I'd find all these people, like Baby Jane Holzer or Mika Ertigan, I discovered. Mm-hmm. Um, Andy Warhol you took under your wing, didn't you? Yeah. And introduced him around. Yes, he says in his autobiography somewhere, Nicky Haswell took me to Park Avenue and made me smart, which is sort of true, I think. So it was that English eye and that sense of style that obviously Diana Vreeland really appreciated. Well, she loved anything English, I mean, mm. you know. And I, I get people like Nicky London who photographed and by Horsk and Desmond and Penny, Desmond and Mariga Guinness and... A lot of my friends were immediately being photographed for big essays by Horst and Nicholas Lawford. And people didn't mind having their homes photographed no, at that time? No, honour. Mm. Especially in America, though. Whereas now people are, le- uh, are more reluctant, well, aren't they? they long for it. You think they long for it? <laughs> Min, Min Hogg said you wouldn't believe the amount of letters she gets, which she used to get from very grand people saying, please put my house in interiors. <laughs> but they all pretend, pretend that they don't want to. And were they commissioning themselves or were they asking their husbands to commission and give them? Well, they themselves. They did, yes. Yeah. As part of their look yeah. and what they wanted, and they knew what they wanted. Well, the husbands came in, the husband with the checkbook. But Jules came in much later with, well, like in, in Barbara Black's autobiography, extraordinary scene. This is Barbara Emile, the journalist who married well, Conrad Black. One point she thought that they are being the fated couple in New York. He gives her some emeralds. Mm. And it's the time when all those husbands were sort of slightly over being the top people in New Wall Street. They were the sort of the. They, they went to lunch parties by now, you know what I mean by that? They, were, they weren't in the office, they were the sort of adjuncts for the women. And there, somebody's out there, I can't remember whose house it is, and she's wearing the emeralds, and one of those sort of ex-banker biggies says to Barbara, you know, those aren't real emeralds. I mean, it just shows, it's sort of vanity fair, isn't it? You know, it shows how the world changes, when the husbands know about jewels. Yes. Rather than the women. I think my favourite part in that book was when she was just getting together with probably Conrad and she was sort of introduced to this immensely wealthy world and she was being told to pack and get ready. They were going to stay at some glamorous house party in Palm Beach. So she rather sort of nervously um, contacted the hostess and said, you know, what do I need to bring? She said, oh, you know, we're not dressing up too much. Bring this, bring that. And just patio jewels. Now, patio jewels apparently turned out to be exquisite turquoises and diamonds for the day. Tutti frutti. Well, that's Palm Beach. (laughs) I mean, you wouldn't wear that anywhere else, just particularly Palm Beach. But I love that patio jewel. I wore those beach jewels when I was young. And what were beach jewels? That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So still very elegant and grand. All those sort of women at the Lido when I was young, all those cabanas all had beach jewels. Because it was, that was the sort of thing that Fulker was doing, actually, because they were, he made them for Chanel as jokes. And then gradually, but he had Paul Flato, who was a wonderful jeweler too, Paul Flato. Yes. And then, of course, Ken Lane did it to the health degree. And he kind of paid homage to them all by <laughs> copying, basically, and he was quite he was totally, happy to admit. Was, yeah, when I met him, he was making shoes. At, um, was that at Bloomingdale's? I, I or? Uh-huh. One of the department stores. Mogul's. There's a famous cover of somebody like... It's maybe a film star, it may not, maybe a film model. And she's being 
got together for a photograph by lots of famous, like the hairdresser and the dressmaker, and maybe in Biosca Lorenzo when he's working for Elizabeth Arden. And the shoes are Ken, the man, the Ken is the man putting the shoes on. And that's when, he, that's when I first met him. He wasn't doing jewellery at all. And then it was by doing the little decorative embellishments on the shoes that made him start yeah. to make jewellery. And then, of course, he was like Nicky. He was in this group. He was in this social world and he was really inspired by the jewels that women were wearing. Yeah. And began sort of... And he liked travelling, he'd go to India and find wonderful things, you know. He was very, he was beyond clever, he was very clever, he wasn't just hopping, I mean, he was inventive too, and he, those sort of bracelets with the animal's heads, they were David Webb, weren't they? Yes, David Webb, and, um. Um, and he was witty and funny and... And I have to say, I went actually with Kenny to the JAR exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum in New York some mm. years ago. And so, of course, this was huge. No, no living artist has had an exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum. When we were looking around, there was sort of special evening and quite a party. And people were coming up who knew Kenny and coming up and saying to him, Kenny, are you getting any ideas? <laughs> and Kenny turned around and said, I did jar before jar. <laughs> <laughs> he sort of did. Um, I mean, those tiny prom trombler things he did. But I guess they were all drawn to you. I mean, Nicky, what some people don't know about him, apart from being this tremendous interior designer, writer, and all the things he's been, is very, very posh. He is British nobility. You were born Nicholas Ponsonby Haslam. Yeah, because my mother, my mother was Ponsonby. Yes, your mother was a Ponsonby and <coughs> sort of related to the Spencers. And... Cousins of the Spencers, yeah. Yes. And, you... and I think rather chic. I think I'm the only person alive who can say truthfully, as my mother said to Queen Victoria. So you... Because my mother was Queen Victoria's goddaughter. Oh, was she? And she died when she was five. The Queen died when my mother was five. My mother remembered going to Osborne and playing with the, uh, the royal children. So she must have said, hello, Queen, wasn't she? She must have said something like that. To the, she to must the have curtsied very but, beautifully. <laughs> well, I don't, think, I, I don't think the Queen wanted that. Mm -hmm. she, she, she remembered the Queen being absolutely wonderful with children, the Queen of Victoria, and a smiling without, she about to have tiny pearly teeth. Uh -huh. I don't think anybody's still alive to talk to the Queen. There are people who can remember the Queen, but not actually talk to her. Mm -hmm. I think I must be the last person you can. So that was rather nice. She was still absorbing people's children. Well, she had, I think she had hundreds. My, Late my, my, in life, though. They, they, my grandfather was worked for the court, you know, so mm -hmm. he, I mean, he was the private secretary to the mm -hmm. monarch. Did Queen Victoria leave your mother something? Did she... She said she left her a pincushion with Windsor Castle on it. I'm not sure it's true. It was so hideous, but she may have done it. sat in the, in the, in the, in the sitting room, at home, in the drawing room at home, revered. But she certainly didn't leave her any, any jewellery up there. Mm. I mean, she had hundreds of hundreds. Hundreds of godchildren. Yeah. Mm. So do you think growing up in that sort of atmosphere really honed your eye for style and decorative effects? Because didn't you, I think you told me at one point when you were at Eton, in your room, you actually decorated your room. Like, oh, yes, no I, boy ever did no, that. No, and people, your room was swagged in fabric and chintz. Ostrich feathers. And, oh, yeah. ostrich feathers. Fake grass, so I had a fake grass carpet. So I bought it at uh, Barrow at Belgrave Square. Gone now. Everybody had Peter Scott Prince, didn't they? Flying ducks. I had a great big photograph of James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause. Mm -hmm. Lit up from behind. 
and my tutor used to bring other pupils after dinner to see it, like sort of cabaret. So, um, Nikki, what made you want to decorate your rooms so fully when all these boys had very spartan, masculine bedrooms? I, I think my, it was slightly in my, in my blood. My father had a brother called Oliver who designed theatre sets and things on a small scale and was, had a wonderful sense of, of interior design uh, or interiors. When I had polio, I was in his, father, in his house in Scotland, and I was put in his wife's, but she'd be deaf, so bedroom, and every inch of it, walls, curtains, everything, was violet chintz, chintz with violets on them. It was so beautiful, I remember it now, bunches of violets, all everything. And that's the sort of thing one remembers. And my parents' house in the country was beautiful, because my father's cousin was a man called Geoffrey Scott, mm -hmm. who was the, probably the most influential man of his time, in a way, architecturally. He wrote a famous book called The Architecture of Humanism. And Maynard Keynes was my, my father's other great friends. And it was beautiful, my parents' house, with wonderful things they found in Italy, and very stylish. Mm -hmm. So I just think I was, it was there. I just mm -hmm. absorbed it without knowing. But you didn't start your business until you came back to London. No. But after New York, didn't you have a stint in Hollywood? Yeah, I went to I had a ranch in Arizona. You had a ranch in Arizona, as <laughs> one does. Like one does, yes. <laughs> well, a so time as a cowboy. Five. You were what? a cowboy for a while. Uh, who hasn't wanted to be a cowboy? <laughs> <laughs> All that gear. <laughs> Leather. Uh, well, suede. Fringe. Suede. Fringe suede. Scorchewed. Had to be scorchewed. Very important. Um, and so what about Hollywood? What about your time in Hollywood? And I'd been to Hollywood before I went to Arizona. I had a great mm. friend called Jean Howard. Who was an actress. But she was sort of an actress, but she was more the sort of powerhouse of Hollywood. She was married to the great age. And I met her actually with Fulco uh -huh. in London. And I met her again in New York and she had this house at home. And she asked me to go for one summer to stay with her. Mm -hmm. And so I, I used to, then I went every, every summer to stay with Jean for four years. And Jean knew... Absolutely everybody in Hollywood you can think of. I mean, mm -hmm. Garbo, mm -hmm. Dietrich, Billy Wilder, Louis Milestone, King Vidor, Myrna Loy, all the great stars were her great friends. And you you just see them at every single party. It was, just, it was the most extraordinary society I've ever known. Because it was so, I suppose, so compact. Yeah. All the stars were huge and they all hung and out together. And they all knew each other, they were best friends. And um, so what were the women wearing at those parties? I don't ever remember sort of diamondy things, like I don't know, Edwardian jewels weren't a thing at all. There was nothing like coming out parties, mm. you know, cotillions, mm. people didn't wear those sort of clothes, no. diamonds, like we did in England still. There were no tiaras, just sort of quite modern jewellery. I mean, as I mm. say, tutti frutti, well, you know, bright jewels, bright, bright jewels and lots of gold. Lots of gold. And sort of um, brand, sort of they were going to Tiffany or Cartier or... I don't think they went to Tiffany. No. Well, Paul Flato, they probably were at Paul Flato. Yeah, Flater. Paul Flato. And pearls. And I suppose they did have big diamonds too, didn't they? They. Probably... Oh, they certainly had big rocks. Mm. I mean, people like Barbara Warner had amazing... Anne Warner, I mean. My mother had amazing jewels. Mm -hmm. The wife of... Um, Jack Warner. So were they dressing up for dinner? Yes, it was very dressy. Dinners, dinners and jeans were very dressy, but not not sort of long gowns. Mm -hmm. Cocktail frogs. Cocktail frogs. Or my favourite thing of all that had sort of just come in because those I think the Italian designers were the greatest designers in the world. All those sort of um, what was she called? Simonetta. That, Simonetta. Well, that, that whole world. Simonetta. Even Pucci. 
they'd done the, 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 the narrow, with the cut there, pants. In sort Shantung. of palazzo pants. Well, palazzo pajamas were wide. But they were these narrow Capri. pants. With, Capri pants. Capri pants, exactly. With big skirts over them, which opened up. Oh, it was the most beautiful look in the world. Pretty as a... But you have to be tall and dark really, to carry it off. It's an uh-huh. Italian look. But my God, those Italian women look wonderful in them. So who was the most stylish for you at that time in Hollywood? Hmm. Audrey Wilder was pretty well dressed. Audrey Wilder's wife. Um, Merle Oberon was pretty good. She had a big jewellery collection. Yeah, she had big jewellery. She the most... had wonderful jewels because they were full coat. And who was the most beautiful? Of all the women? Yes. Well, I was Not Garbo? No, no. Well, she is beautiful. Too. I liked, um, my favourite of all is Sid Charisse. Mm-hmm. I think she's the most beautiful woman ever lived. And she had those long legs. Oh, she was so wonderful, Sid. And, of course, um, I tried to tie it George Gabor was a great friend. Was she? She was, she was terrific. She had some crazy jewels, sort of funny jewels, you know. Yes. Scotty dogs and things. I'm not quite poodles. And lots of diamonds from lots of oh, engagement lots of rings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she was great. Um, and you met Marilyn Monroe. Yes, well, I... You met her in New York. I met her at that, that, that tragic moment, you yeah. know. In the Art Department of Vogue, there were these black things showing them the, what the magazine was going to have, you know. And there's this black series. We weren't allowed to know what it was, but being in the Art Department and being nosy, I found out it was that Bert Stern had, was going to mm. photograph, had been photographed mm. Marilyn. After she, that disastrous film, Something's Got to Give. And she was on like a bed of pearls, wasn't she? Yeah, well, she was, I, mean, I hadn't seen her at this point, but she was na- famously going to be naked. That was why it was all secret. And suddenly they realised that Marilyn had picture approval. And I was the only person who knew about it. And the art director, Priscilla Peck, said to me, listen, Nicky, you, 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 you've got to do this. Can you take these pictures up to Miss Monroe to have a check them? And they gave me a china graph and a big envelope and I went up to the apartment on 57th Street, rang the bell and the dog barked, nothing happened, dog barked again. Sorry, the door opened. Marilyn was close to me than you are, there. Greasy hair, crying, makeup all running, horrible tracksuit with makeup stains all around. I mean, the opposite of what you expected to be. Mm. Tragic. And she almost shut the door, and I said to my editor, she said, oh, I haven't got time now, honey, I haven't got time. And they said, can we look at them right here? And we stood in the doorway, and she put her finger through the one she didn't like and checked the other ones. And the telephone was ringing. So when the telephone rang, it was right all towards the end. She dropped the whole lot on the floor and picked them and pushed them arms and ran away down to answer the telephone. And she died three weeks later. And so but you witnessed witness someone in real time. Oh, she and was really happiness. at the end, yeah. Mm. Very sad. Yeah. I mean, she was the best ever. Mm. Do you know, yesterday they had some like it hot on followed. Oh, they, they had how to marry a million children. <laughs> I mean, it's the iconic jewellery moment of all time yeah. in a film. Have jewels become like currency now rather than. No, wearable. I, I mean, do, do people buy them for their intrinsic value of being like gold? They're, 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 Some people, yeah. I think there is that element that even if it's something rather beautiful, sometimes somebody buying it might want to know there's a store of value there too. Yeah. So they might want a large diamond in it or they know it's a rare stone. So I think some people um, do that. 
I like to think after COVID that people are getting a bit more sentimental and meaningful and emotional about their jewellery because we've sort of lived through that. Certainly. Do the young want old people's jewellery or do they have it? They reset it straight away. I think only if they've got an inherent style and they can yeah. see how to wear it in a cool way. Yeah. So there it comes to your thing of not wanting to look the same. Yeah. Some people probably sit with it in their drawer or in a safe or and not knowing the potential of using it to look different, fabulous, stylish, because it's a one-off thing. Yeah, and I suppose the other thing is that thanks to Ken Lane and Dalwood, even Fior. Do you remember Fior? Yes. Uh, that costume jewellery has taken the place of fun jewellery. Mm. Sort of Foucault shells and things, which was sort of taking jewellery the other way, taking jewellery to nature and fun, mm -hmm. has disappeared because it can be, you can get it in costume jewellery, so there's no valuable fun jewellery. Mm. Mm. With a sort of sense of flamboyance yeah. and... But it's just a very different life. But you sort of embrace modernity always. That's what I think about you. Because you changed your look. You famously well, changed to, your look. I just try to keep up to date. <laughs> you keep up to date and you famously, was it in the 90s, you wanted to look like Liam Gallagher? Yeah, well, I just And suddenly, to from one day to the next, you were in tight leather <laughs> drain oh, no, I've done them forever. <laughs> <laughs> what, what were you wearing? I was just, I, I, I think I wore leather before Liam Gallagher. Like David Bailey says, he, he and I invented the 60s. He the said, modern rockers. Yeah, well, that long before the Beatles. No, the cowboy look of that. I, well, I, had a, mm. I had a motorbike in Arizona. I was a, I was a little hell's angel. Mm. I had a fucking work. <laughs> um, I just like, I, just, I, I sort of like costume in a kind of sense. Yes. People don't do it enough. No, they don't. It I gives was, other people pleasure too. When I was young, everybody in the evening wore that, that sort of Austrian evening clothes. People like David Herbert and all those sort of chic men mm. always wore Austrian look in the evening. I see it coming back a bit now. Have you got another um, new style in you, do you think, that one day you'll surprise us and come down as... Well, I, I'm also usually copying somebody I see or a bar, but I, I, didn't, I didn't make it up. Yeah, I saw I saw a couple of boys in a Zara the other day who were so beautifully dressed. I'm going to copy that. What did they wear? Well, it sounds ridiculous, but it was they had sort of wide blue trousers like this, but a bit wider. Plain black shoes, white turtleneck, and white long white max done up at the top. Mm. It was so stylish. It was the opposite of anything we've seen so far. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know what nationality they were. Okay, well I'm going to wait for that. Um, yeah. But anyone, particularly in England, Nicky is because of his long career and his sense of style has become our arbiter of taste essentially, and he tells us every year what is common, i.e. vulgar, and shouldn't be done or pursued or mimicked, so warns us all. And what's on the list this year that's common and vulgar that we should keep away from? He puts this particularly on drying up cloths that we use in the kitchen. And we're just going to look at this year's don'ts. Sometimes, in the past, it's been Christmas in the Caribbean is common, palm trees... Cufflinks, banging on about microclimates, Soho House. <laughs> oh, baby showers. I think baby showers as common this year. But mm. actually, there were all things. You heard you say Christmas in the Caribbean. When I was young, you never went away for Christmas. You stayed in London. Mm -hmm. For Christmas and New Year, it was a great time for parties. Mm. Now that everybody goes away, you can't give a party in London. Mm -hmm. Everybody's away. Mm -hmm. 
But New Year parties were fabulous in London and Christmas. It was a great mistake to well, cheap flights, of course. Well, it but might it... happen again because flights are so expensive now. OK, so now we're looking. This is yet more things Nikki has some finds common. And on it we have hydrangeas, neck pillows, cockapoos. I'm very happy that Buster's a multi-poo, so he's <laughs> escaped. <laughs> Bond again, Street. They're not common. That's, everybody has them. It's that common. Oh my God. I don't mean common in the sense of Nancy Mitford. I So common in the sense that everyone has it. Yes, overdone. Overdone, yeah. Not chic. Yeah, yeah. I am so not chic. I have to announce here now, because I have hydrangeas at home, I have a multi -poo. No, that's a different thing. Hydrangeas, that when you get one hydrangea and a bunch of flowers, that's what's so awful. Okay. If, you buy, if somebody buys you a bouquet... They put one bright pink hydrangea. That's awful. I yeah, like hydrangeas. I can tick the hydrangeas. Well, the cockapoo nearly. I've got a multi-poo. Bond Street, I spend my life in. That's common. Vogue is common. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first from Nikki. Vogue is common. Why is Vogue common? For obvious reasons. <laughs> <laughs> what? You've gone off it. Oh. Having started your career there, it's not what it was. It doesn't, it doesn't lead anymore, it follows. Vogue used to lead when I was young. Tells you how to look, tells you how to dress. What leads now? Nothing. Maybe the brands. Yeah. Influences. Dior, Chanel. Oh, influences. Influences yeah. lead. Of course yeah. they do. Um, Flavoured tonic water, chuck it out. Cushions on beds, help. I better restart my bedroom. And then it's half term. <laughs> I think that when people say that. Side plates. Divorce. Stay married, guys. The Met Ball. Um, binge watching. Ladies Day at Ascot. Oh, what is it called? Ladies Day. Let's, Instead of Girl Cup Day. Let's unpack that. What's that a nightmare? Yes, that's a sort of um, business oh. thing, isn't it? Anyway, these are given widely around at Christmas. Um, around the UK, so we can all follow them and keep up to date. Well, they're really tongue-in-cheek, though, They're tongue-in-cheek, made to give us all a bit of a laugh and, and, and mock us all, because we all fall into this. So what would be, if we did a jewellery um, dishcloth with what's common in jewellery, what do you think would be on it? Well, I'm not sure anything's common in jewellery, if it's, if it's beautifully done or it's when things... Are... Could you wear too much, for instance? Could you? No, never wear too much jewellery. You can't wear too <laughs> much jewellery. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> and those sort of jewellers that don't really sell to anybody but, but do books on their own jewellery if privately printed. Unknown jewellers. That, but, uh, I think they're pretty ghastly. Um, I think Cartier is getting pretty ghastly. It should not be at airports. It really shouldn't. It lessens its oh, cachet. Yeah. I mean, Tiffany's never been up there really for that much. It was just kind of... A name for it was never very good, different jewellery. Well, except Elsa Peretti, John Slumberger. She's great. She yeah. was one of the great supporters. Yeah, but she it went quite common because it but was... But now they're over, it's all, overdoing. It, it, that's sort of so easy to copy, it's common. Elsa Peretti was... So was Paloma. Had a lot of things. Mm. So we we can't wear too much, so that's good to know. Any colour that's... Like yellow diamonds. Do you like yellow diamonds? Yeah, I think I think coloured diamonds are all odd, but I'm sure they've they've got a point. Brown diamonds I read about the other day. Somebody got a brown diamond. It's a nice idea, but I, I think the whole point of brown diamonds is to be white. To dazzle. Well, it was. Do you know why they wore them diamonds? You, of course you do. But why why men wore stocks and women wore lace? No, why? Women wore diamonds to light the throat. Mm -hmm. It's to give you that 
before they had plastic uh, surgery. It's a sort of Botox lift. Yeah, it's a Botox lift. And diamonds by the ears, it I takes, suppose. Takes the face wider. Mm. It's all, I mean, everything has a reason, obviously. We're doing actually a podcast on ear piercing, and that's become a bit of an art to, as you say, heighten the cheekbones, widen really? the face, and they sort of draw attention to different things by where they place the piercings. Because they put them higher up now. Mm. I had my done at Selfridges years ago. But you don't have an earring in I today. I come with Roddy Llewellyn, he and I had that together. Oh, no, it's grown over. Oh, it's grown over. So you need a new... I can arrange that, Nicky. I don't... I can I, get you replaced. I, I look ridiculous. <laughs> my age is ridiculous. Anyway, um, I've, got, I've got some nice false diamonds that Stephen Webster made for me. And so, with your kind of royal connection with Queen Victoria, and having met the Duchess of Windsor, do you think there's a royal who's worn jewellery particularly well? Would you say it's Wallace Simpson, even though she didn't have an HRH? Of course she did. Pete Rabbit, she was. She could not be. Because she was married to him. She was married to him as Prince, HRH, Prince Edward. You automatically take the name and title of your husband. She was HRH, Princess Edward, full stop, Duchess of Windsor. He was HRH, Prince Edward, comma, Duke of Windsor. Mm-hmm. So she couldn't ever say that she was... I mean, I don't think she cared anyway, by the way. Mm-hmm. But he, uh, if there's some said in the party, it's HRH, the Duke of Windsor, and HRH, Princess Edward. It was just too bubbling. But in fact, she was a royal highness. But as I, I don't think she cared a scrap. No, he minded more. She doesn't seem to mind anything like that. Do you but see... she just did look dazzling. I, you say what you... I don't remember her clothes more than her jewels, but mm-hmm. I, I know the jewels were photographs almost more than... A, you know, but my God, she just has that extraordinary cardboard cutout cheek. Something so that's like a playing card. Which is true, she did that with a wide face. So do you think she has worn jewellery better, the chicest of any British royal? Yes, certainly. Mm. Do you ever sort of lament that that glamorous life has gone? Oh, yes, totally. Absolutely all the time. Everything is exactly the same now, isn't it? I mean, nobody really looks different to anybody else. Yeah, totally. Nobody has a kind of stamp anymore. I mean, especially younger girls all look exactly the same. Long, stringy, blonde hair. And, and I suppose partly because when I was young, young girls wanted to dress like their parents. Mm-hmm. So you had proper clothes. And you changed clothes and you bought them. But you can't wear jewels anymore. People steal them. You know, it's a different, it's a whole different world. You wear jewels in the harem alone, if you're a woman, or at a private party behind closed <coughs> doors. Yeah. And I suppose mothers want to dress like daughters now. Exactly. <laughs> it's like this role reversal. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. Nikki, thank you so much for sharing that with us. I kind of want to go back and live that with you, actually. Well, we're going to go this one day. <laughs> We've all live all this again. Relive all this again. <laughs> We'll, we'll have to have another of your famous parties yeah, where we can oh, all dress up. And... I remember the day. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. For this and other episodes of If Jewels Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwalton.com slash podcasts. Please share it any way you can. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast feed on any of the platforms where you get your podcasts. And we love to have a rating and a comment. You can find out more about our sponsors at foolygemstones.com. And please join me again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget. I'll be talking about a really important topic in jewellery. It's Turquoise Mountain, the international NGO working in Afghanistan, Myanmar, Saudi Arabia and Jordan. 
I'll be talking with the anthropologist and jewellery designer and activist Pippa Small, um, who supports them and has just returned from Kabul, where she's been working with some of the women taking part in Turquoise Mountain, and Shoshana Stewart, who's the CEO. They're very engaging speakers and talk about the importance of women in conflict areas being able to be economically independent and also create jobs, skills and renew sense of pride in areas where culture is under threat. So please join me then and thank you for listening.